Welcome to Torah Study this uh, lovely morning. This is the day in the Torah when not only we have this whole sweep of Joseph where he starts out in prison, ends up uh, interpreting the Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh says, oh, you're the smartest guy I know, and therefore I'm going to make you my prime minister, essentially. And he becomes, you know, second in command of the whole country. And then there's his predictions come true. There's a famine. This is the short version. There's a famine. His brothers back in Canaan in Canaan are starving like everybody else. And dad says, go get us some grain in Egypt. They go to Egypt to get some grain. And we have this first encounter, first and second encounter between Joseph and his brothers whom he hasn't seen in many years. Uh, his last encounter with his brothers wasn't so positive for him, obviously. They were first going to kill him, and then they sold him into slavery. And it's one of those moments where we, watching this unfold on stage, as it were, we know what's going on, but they don't know what's going on. Uh, and it's Joseph recognizes his brothers, but of course they don't recognize him because he doesn't look like what well, scrawny kid that they threw into a pit and then sold off into slavery. He's the prime minister of Pharaoh. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He has an Egyptian name now. He speaks Egyptian. So everything about him is foreign and Egyptian. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And and he plays this out. Obviously, that's part of this great drama. He plays out this uh, opportunity to exact revenge. We're not quite sure if he's going to exact revenge, exactly what he's going to do, but, and then sends them back, and then they come back again, because he wants to see his younger brother. They bring Benjamin back. He demands that if they're going to see him again, they have to bring their brother back, and, and they do, and this portion ends, the cliffhanger ends, at the with uh, Benjamin being cast into the dungeon, essentially, that uh, that Joseph uh, arranges it so that they, it looks like somebody stole something from him, a goblet from him, and that it's Benjamin, and he says, everybody else can go, but I'm, the guy who stole it is going to be in prison now, and it ends with Judah about to do what he does in the very beginning of the next, of next week's portion, which is offer himself in place of Benjamin. And as a result of that, the uh, Joseph revealing himself and uh, um, the sort of whole story comes full circle. Is uh, Benjamin the youngest? Benjamin's the youngest, yeah. Um, and his full blood brother, so to speak. Biological brother. Um, the other brother from the same mother. <laughs> so to speak, because, um, you know, they all had four mothers. It was the four mothers of, <laughs> of the 12 tribes, so to speak, in any event. So what I wanted to point out was, what I wanted to point out was the, that this is a story that looks like it's, there's a lot of deception and masks. It's a story about masks, right? It's, it's Joseph hiding behind the mask of what he looked like. Well, we have a lot of stories like that in, the, in Genesis that, to me, are all linked. The, like, like what? What's the story of somebody pretending to be someone else in Genesis? Leah, Leah, Leah pretends to be Rachel. Just, Jacob pretends to be Esau. We have, like, we have one more. Abraham. 
We have one more. He pretends that Sarah's his Abraham sister. Br- Sarah pretends that she's his wife, his sister instead of his wife. And last week we had Tamar uh, pretending to be a prostitute, but um, in order to for the same the same Judah pretending to be uh, a prostitute so that she could ultimately have some power over Judah and get regain some status and get her. So what's up with that? So, and here we have, here we have, it uh, seems to me, in the wisdom of our ancestors and whoever wrote the Torah, I don't know who wrote the Torah, but whoever did, wrote, the, wrote these stories, that there needs, obviously there's a method to their madness. Um, question is, what is it? What's the, how does it connect to us? Because to me, what makes Torah vibrant and living is the same thing that Gestalt therapists do with dreams. After all, like what's how do you how do you interpret a dream? Oh, this is all about dreams today too, isn't it? So the the uh, the Talmud says, according to the the dream, according to the interpretation is the dream. Meaning, what, what does a dream mean? You have dreams. Everybody dreams. We always wonder what it means. What does a dream mean? It's a reflection of reality, the inner reality. So who's to, who gets to say what a dream means when we have dreams? We do. Who you follow? You follow Jung. You follow Freud. So you could you could pick up the book that says you know I have a great book on interpreting dreams at home. Can't remember who read it. She's a psychiatrist or some kind. Anyway, and, and there are people who have like dream interpretations. If it's this symbol, it means that. If it's that symbol, it means that. If you see, if you're standing by a river, it means this. If the sun's setting, if you're being chased, it means that. But we can be taught right? to do that. So, so we can do that, or we can use someone else's guide, like Freud says. It's all about sex or whatever. Uh, you know, all about your mother, all about whatever. Or. The Gestalt version. The Gestalt version is to remind you, everything in the dream is you. It, yes. It's all in your head. You made up everything in that dream. So everything in that dream is something about you. You're it's, every it's your story. You're every character. And the way to interpret dreams in, in that model is put yourself as that character. What is it like to be the chaser? What's it like to be chased? What's it like to be the sun, the stars, the moon, the river? What's it like to be the cows? What's it like to be the ones who are eaten? What's it like to be the healthy ones? What? Right? Yeah. And that's the way I see Torah. The way I see Torah is like, it's our collective dream. It's our Jewish people's dream. Good morning. It's our Jewish people's dream and... What makes it powerful is when it we see ourselves, our individual selves, and our collective selves in the story. So, to the degree that this story is about hiding and masks, how's it connect to me personally, Stephen Rubin? How does it connect to you personally? Yeah. In fact, we all wear masks. We wear masks on different occasions. Sometimes we have to play a role as a student. Sometimes we have to play a role as a mother or father. We have to play. I'm a wearing role. the rabbi mask right yeah, now. The right? That's, like, that's the rabbi mask. We talk about different hats, but yeah. I have a wall of masks, and, and yes, it you reminds do. me of the mask that we all have to put on sometimes. Yeah, yours are the coolest masks. Though. Your masks are like unbelievable. <laughs> the coolest masks are the ones that everybody has on 
when they're right. acting a role in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. But these are in fact deceitful masks. Ah. All, and some of ours and are too. These so these masks are for a specific purpose. Yeah, in other words, see. Jacob puts the mask of I'm Esau, covers himself with hair and goes and you know and literally lies to his father, who are you? I'm Esau, your firstborn. Are you really Esau? Yeah, I'm really Esau, Dad. You know, I'm really Esau, Dad, you know? And and the famous the hands are the hands of Esau, but the voice is the voice of Jacob, you know, because you ultimately are we always really fooled by our own masks, you know. How conscious are we of our own masks that we're wearing at different moments in our lives? And when do they crumble? When do they fall? When, when you know, how long can we sustain the mask that we put on when we're on a first date with somebody and we're trying to, like, impress them or something? Or we're, you know, or we're in a first, we're going to a job interview and suddenly we're trying to figure out who, who should I be when I step into the room, you know, right? I mean, how many times are we, who should I be when I step into the room? You know, I step up on stage and that's what actors are all about, right? Okay, who am I going to, who am I going to be? I'm going to put that robe on. I'm going to put that talus on. I'm going to put that mask on. I'm going to put that costume on and I'm going to be the prime minister of Egypt, or am I going to be the brother? And finally, you know, how do you sustain that in life? And, and ultimately, to me, you know, everybody gets busted, after all. <laughs> Nobody gets away, really, ultimately, with their mask in the stories. Because there's a price to pay for wearing a mask. There's always a price to pay. Even here, even with Joseph, ultimately... First of all, he tortures his, you know, his brothers for a while, <clears throat> ultimately. He had a sit-down, he has a feast. Yeah, he, he like, it's like a push-pull. He treats them like they're royalty, and they don't know what the hell's going on because, you know, they're just like poor slobs who are coming over begging for food, trying to buy some food, and he's, you know, feasting them and whatever, and then he sent them away the first time, and they open up their, the bags of food that they just bought, and the money's back. And they're going, oh, my God, we just stole, you know, all this food. And what are we going to do? You know, all that imagine the mental torture. They went so hard that they, they, they were afraid to go back. You know, it was only because their father insisted they go back. And they said, we, uh, first of all, it's like we stole the money. And secondly, we got to go take Benjamin. You're going to have no children, you know. So everybody's, there's a price to pay for everything. And I think part of the story we learn is, that A, we all wear masks and there's a price to pay. And even here, when Joseph ultimately next week finally breaks down, he cries, he's like embraces his brothers, he says, I am Joseph, your brother, you know, how is my father? My father's well, and brings everybody there, and they never believe him. They they never remember, they never fully accept he doesn't hold a grudge. And that there's not going to be ultimately, you know, <laughs> that there's like some guillotine hanging over their heads. They're just waiting to fall to the very end. They're afraid when, when their father finally is dying, they're freaking out again. Oh, my God. He was just waiting ultimately till dad dies. And then he's going to get revenge on us. They never get over what, what they did. So part of the story is forgiveness, letting go 
who's carrying, how we carry with us our own misdeeds, things that we regret, our own regrets, how we acted in different ways. How do you let stuff go? You know, part of the part of what I'm spending a lot of time in <clears throat> these days is listening to uh, lectures and, and watching programs of people who are energy healers of various kinds who talk about different kinds of healing and um, physical healing sort of things and ultimately all of them no matter what their methodology of energy healing is there's lots of different things that people do ultimately underneath it all all of them talk about the the need for emotional healing that the physical healing happens in in can Want to sit over here at the table? Come sit over at the table. Uh, in <clears throat> that, that what's necessary for the physical healing is emotional healing as well. And, let, and all of that's about letting go of things. Things because, you know, one of the most famous books in the mind-body world is a book that my daughter gave me called... Uh, what's it called? It's called the, the Body Holds the Score. Keeps the score. The body keeps the score, and um, it's a you know it's a scientific book really. It's, so it's for me. I think one of the most interesting questions that we don't deal with often enough in this part of the Torah is what makes Joseph so willing to forgive. Uh, How does he get to that place? I think he was always that way. He was born that way. That's my feeling. I think he was always that way. Born that way. So what was he like as well? What was his Egyptian? Of course, of course, his uh, oh, his Egyptian name I never can pronounce. Here, Pharaoh gives him this Egyptian name. In, um, where did he get? And it's coming up. Yeah, here he is. Uh, it's on page two thirty-nine. It's verse forty-four. Verse forty-four. Pharaoh has said to Joseph, "I am Pharaoh. Without you, none shall lift hand or foot in the land of Egypt." Pharaoh called Joseph Zaphanat Panea. He gives him this Zaphanat Zaphanat Panea, and he gives him Osnat, his uh, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, as a wife. Uh, oh yeah, I forgot. That's another one of the cool things about this week's Torah portion is we get the first Jewish kids born in the diaspora, so to speak. <coughs> right? We get the intermarriage. We get Joseph marrying the daughter of an Egyptian priest which is a popular thing for our leaders, obviously. We have Moses, who got married to the daughter of a Midianite priest. And here we have Joseph, who marries the daughter. So, like, obviously, marrying priests' daughters. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? (laughs) Marrying priests' daughters. Anyway, in the modern world, that's a a challenge, unless they're Episcopal priests, because they get to marry. But... Catholic priest daughters would be a really interesting thing. Anyway, so he gets, Joseph gets part of his ascension into his new status is he gets a new name. Names are powerful. Gets a new name. He gets, after all, that's one of the key elements of what happens when someone becomes Jewish, who wasn't born or raised Jewish, and they choose Judaism as their adult identity. Part of that is, and I always think, uh, I never like conversion, I always like adoption better, because what we do is we adopt that person, 
into the Jewish family, that person becomes part of the Jewish family, and like what happens in most, when I got, I got adopted, when my biological father died, and then my mother remarried, my current father, I was six, and my sister was eight, so when I was born, my last name was Schneider, Stephen Michael Schneider, and when my mother married Jack Rubin, he adopted my sister and I, and we changed our last name to Rubin. So and then I became Stephen Michael Rubin, then I married Dee Dee Carr and became Stephen Carr Rubin, and what's in a name anyway? So, so, too many names. Anyway, so, uh, but that's what, what happens when someone becomes Jewish and they get adopted into the Jewish family, they get a, a Jewish name, get a Hebrew name. Names are powerful. We give them a name and then they're connected, they're a part of the family. And that's what Pharaoh did for Joseph, gave him a, an Egyptian name. You're now part of the Egyptian family and gave him a wife. He guess he didn't get, really. I guess he didn't get to vote on that. He got a wife, and then they had two kids, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, Manasseh and Ephraim, in that order, but Manasseh and Ephraim. And, of course, because this is one of the coolest things we do, in modern Jewish life, modern meaning post-rabbinic Jewish life of the last 1,500 years or so, the uh, the Shabbat Friday night blessing it is Friday isn't it yeah so tonight's blessing if you were doing a traditional blessing of your of sons the traditional blessing of the sons is may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh we don't say may God make you like Moses or even Abraham Isaac and Jacob we say may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh that's like on one hand a crazy blessing why don't we say be like Moses be like Joseph, be like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, our great patriarchs. And we, we don't say, know anything about Ephraim. We say, be like Ephraim and Manasseh. What do we know about Ephraim and Manasseh? Nothing. Why say, be like Ephraim and Manasseh? We don't know. Well, Ephraim and Manasseh, here's the reason. Be, Ephraim and Manasseh, who are the sons of Joseph and therefore the grandsons of Jacob... Who are the 12 tribes? The 12 tribes we think of as the sons of Jacob, but that's not really what happens. Because what happens is, at the end of Jacob's life, just as he's dying, which is coming up in another portion or so, uh, when Jacob is dying, he tells Joseph, Joseph comes and he says, bring your sons. He brings Ephraim and Manasseh, and Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, although he switches them around because that's the other pattern, that the younger always takes precedence over the older. That's the consistent pattern throughout the Genesis, in fact, throughout the whole Torah. The younger son takes precedence over the older son, turns everything on its head because it's supposed to be primogenitor, where the oldest always gets the best of everything and bigger inheritance, but in the Torah, it's exactly the opposite, right? The younger always takes precedence. So Jacob switches his hands and gives precedence to Manasseh uh, over Ephraim and adopts them as you're going to be like my sons now. You are now my sons. And they become two of the tribes of Israel. There's a tribe of Ephraim and a tribe of Manasseh. So what ends up happening, there's no tribe of Joseph, there's a, Ephraim, there's a tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. So, why do we bless them? We bless them because they were the first Jewish children born outside of Israel 
in the diaspora, in the most powerful, sexiest country in the world at the time, the leading country in the time, and they didn't disappear. And they didn't assimilate. And they didn't become Egyptian. When they, how, how could they not become Egyptian? Their father was like king of Egypt, just under the king of Egypt, so to speak. And they had everything. They had all the wealth, all the success, all the everything. And instead, they become two of the tribes of Israel that ultimately their descendants go and inherit the land of Israel, the promised land, leave with Egypt, leave with Moses, ultimately, a few hundred years later, <clears throat> when Moses shows up. And that's why we want them, because, after all, the Talmud that we follow, which is primarily the Babylonian Talmud, not the Jerusalem Talmud, was written in the diaspora. And the rabbis of the rabbinic period, who we quote most most of the time, are also people from the diaspora. And the ability, the power that they ascribed to anyone who was born outside of Israel, who maintains their family connection, their Judaism, their identity, that's like the goal. The goal is not to disappear. The strength of that string. Yeah. You know, so that blessing is like saying, no matter where you live, no matter who you are, may you be, may you carry your identity with you, no matter where you are, even if you're in Egypt, even if you're anywhere, just carry that with you. That's that's kind of the blessing that ended up being on sons. How we got on that? I can't remember. About marrying the daughter of a priest. Yes. Didn't you tell that story at high holidays one time about the priest and the rabbi who are having lunch and the priest says, come on, Rabbi, you can just have a ham and cheese sandwich lunch. Wouldn't you really like a ham and cheese sandwich? Come on, just this time. And the rabbi says, no. He said, will you ever have a ham and cheese sandwich? Yeah, on one occasion at your wedding. Right. No, I didn't tell that story. Um, (laughs) I do know the story, but I, I probably did. I thought you did. I probably did. So, in any event, so, so, so this, this week's story portion, I love this story because it's, um, it's many layers. The layers of, of forgiveness, the layer and the issue of, you know, how, how did Joseph, you said, how, how did Joseph let all this go? Well, first of all, Joseph's way up here and they're way down there. You know, it's pretty easy to be like, oh, you know, no sweat. You know, because look what happened to him. Number one. Number two, that's not how he's portrayed, of course. What really how he's portrayed is like this. Uh, uh, turn to verse 25. That's on page 237 if you're in the green book of the first one. He's just interpreted, he's interpreting the dreams. Okay, we know the dreams. Seven fat cows, then seven thin cows, and the thin cows eat the fat cows, and sheaves of wheat, and all that stuff. You know, and, and he's about to interpret it. How does he interpret it? Joseph says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dream is one. What God is doing, God has revealed to Pharaoh. So, one of Joseph's strongest qualities is humility here. He approaches this, he's no dummy, he's smart, with humility. He says, and he says earlier, I'm, you know, when Pharaoh says, I hear you're a great dream interpreter, not me. I just like say what God says. It's not me. It's not my smartness. It's not me. 
It's God. God says, the seven cows are this, and that, blah, 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 and he tells him the story. It's not me. This is 180 degrees from how we first meet Joseph. Mm-hmm. Joseph, Joseph the dreamer. I mean, don't forget, this is all about Joseph. That's his shtick. Joseph the dreamer. Remember, Joseph's dreams when he was a kid before he got sold into slavery was he's like the sun and there are the moon and the stars and they're circling around him. And he's, and then he tells his brothers, he has this dream where they're all bowing down to him, which of course comes true. But he has this dream and he tells them. And it's not that he has the dream that's the issue. He's full of himself. It's that he tells them. Hey, guess what dream I had? You're going to bow down to me. You know, it's like that's the issue. His arrogance, his lack of sensitivity to how that would feel because here he was, the favored child, coat of many colors, all that, you know, his father who is a slow learner, obviously. That's the other thing about the Torah. Nobody ever learns from their previous, their own experiences in the Torah. It's like one generation after the next does the exact same thing. They show favoritism to one child. Oop, that blew up in my face. Well, that's okay. I'll do it then. You know, and see, maybe it'll work out better this generation. Okay, maybe it'll work out better in this generation. It's like, hello, never works out well for anybody. It's always a bad idea. And here we have, you know, 12 kids and Jacob favors one over the other so blatantly, you know, and stay home, give them a thing, whatever, and give them coats and make them special. And, and as it says in, earlier in the Torah, they hated him even more. They hated him because of the coat. They hated him because of the dreams and because of what he told them about the dreams, that arrogance. So when we first meet him, he's essentially this spoiled, arrogant kid you know, with no sensitivity at all to his brothers. Here it becomes the opposite. He's learned as a result of his life experiences, which suddenly became not so special. He's thrown in the pit, sold into slavery. Then he keeps, every time he rises up, he becomes, you know, the head of the household in Potiphar's house. And then Potiphar's wife thinks that he should sleep with her. And he says no. And then she claims that he tried to rape her. And then he gets thrown in prison for something he didn't do. You know, well, that's a humbling, and all of these things were designed to be humbling experiences. To go, no matter how smart I am, no matter how good looking, I evidently was good looking, smart, clever, you know, dreamer and whatever. Yeah, well, but circumstances happens, and as we say, stuff happens. Um, <laughs> only because I'm being recorded. The, uh, for all eternity. Anyway, um, you know, and if you're smart, if you if you're able, you take the lessons of your own life, and you learn from them. You know, I mean, that's what life's about. It's about the toughest lessons are the ones you learn from. Yeah, I mean, you know. You know, I'm always saying this, but I'll say it again anyway, even though I'm always saying it, because I'm always saying it because it's a fundamental truth. Life's filled with blessings and curses, and you can't always tell which is which. And in fact, everybody in the room has the experience of the things you thought were a curse turning into a blessing, and the things you thought were a blessing turning into a curse. We all have had that experience. You know, Dee and I were just talking about it the other day. We were out in the valley last night with some people... uh, 
some in a hospital. And as we were there, we were in Tarzana, Tarzana Hospital. We met in Tarzana, so we were reminiscing about our meeting and all that stuff. And, um, and how lucky we were that when I applied to be the senior rabbi at Temple Judea, they said no. And then I applied to be the, the rabbi at Ahavat Shalom, and they said no. And, you know, they were the two biggest rejections of my life. And I was like, how can they not hire me? You know, and it was like the terrible thing, and, um, which was turned out to be the greatest blessing ever. Here I am. And I ended up in funky little Pacific Palisades. <laughs> Not so funky, but um, well, you know, the, it, was. it was at the time. It was. it was at the time. In any event, you know, so and I ended up here in the Palisades, which was, you know, the greatest gift ever. Um, and how grateful we were that this is the way my life turned out and our life turned out. And, and exactly that blessing curse thing of how convinced I was, how devastated I was when I wasn't hired by either of those places trying to. I think you transformed us, and we transformed you. 100%. You know, it was great. It was the best thing ever happened. So, but that's life. This is what life is about. But only when you're willing to, like, take a breath, pick yourself up, and say, okay, what do I learn from this? You know, because obviously if you keep doing the same things, you keep getting the same results in life. So if you're smart, you go, I guess I should go left this time instead of keep turning right and banging into the wall. The wall's still there every time I turn right. I think I should turn left. You know, that kind of thing, right? That, yeah, right. <laughs> Particularly you should be watched. <laughs> Don't stop walking into walls, doors and things. Um, you're supposed to open the door, <laughs> Judith. It's supposed to open, you know, supposed to walk into it. Um, in any event, so, that, so what we see here allegedly is a grown-up Joseph who has learned some humility and taken his the wisdom that he's learned as a result of these, the curses of his life, almost being killed literally by his brothers, sold into slavery by his brothers, enslaved and thrown in prison and whatever. And then, of course, in the last portion, he interprets these two dreams and, you know, he's correct in interpreting these dreams and one of them gets killed and the other one gets re-elevated back to his position and he says, you know, it just you know, promise, promise me that you'll, you'll, you'll remember me. And he didn't. He forgot him. Of course, he remembered him ultimately. Do you think he consciously decided which was more important in his choices? What do you mean? To choose to forgive oh. and accept or to glory in the position he had of power over them and take advantage of it. Did you uh, make that a conscious decision? Well, it looks like in the story he started one way and I mean, first of all, it doesn't exactly say, does it say how long it was after he sent them home? He sent them home. till they came back again? I mean, it wasn't like he, he showed up, they showed up and he went... Uh, what should I do? You know, let me play with them a little bit and then reveal himself. It was like they were gone. Yeah. They could have never come back. Mm-hmm. How do you know they were going to come back? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe he knew because ultimately everybody was coming to him because they were the only p- place that had food in the Middle East at that time because he, too. you know, and we hadn't done them yet. You know, I think he had Simeon, didn't he? Yeah. He, yeah. Left he left Simeon. That was the hostage. So, yeah, the hostage. So, you know, they had... But still, they could have not come back. They could have said, you know, he's going to arrest us all for stealing. We have all this money in here. We go back. 
who knows what the hell's going to happen. So, you know, it was a long process. So perhaps, because it certainly looked like in the beginning he was toying with them because he could, because he had the ability to play with them and do whatever, and that ultimately what won out was this is my, these are my brothers. And ultimately the family and the relationship and the emotion, he gets overcome with emotion. He sends everybody away and cries. He starts crying. And to me, part of that power of this story is that he broke down and cried. That he, you know, how powerful is the lesson that, you know, you have to, uh, family matters. And I was just listening to, uh, I don't know how many people read Wayne Dyer. Wayne Dyer isn't alive anymore, but Wayne Dyer wrote lots of, you know, lots of books. Anyway, this is a radio show that he was answering. There's a uh, Hay House, I think, has a radio show where he used to have call-ins and he would answer questions. And it was all about forgiveness. So I haven't listened this morning when I was exercising. He's, he's talking to this woman who says, you know, and she calls up and she says, uh, I need some advice. I don't know how to forgive my father. I haven't seen him in 30 years, and he's dying, and I don't know if I should go see him, but, you know, I, he abused me and did all these horrible things, and I haven't talked to him in 30 years. You know, so, so Wayne Dyer's talking about forgiveness, but he, it, it's, it's the story of, it's not about your father. <laughs> it's, it's not about him. You know, maybe he'll be the same person. Maybe he'll be a different person. You have no control over that. It's about you. It's about you've been walking around for 30 years holding on this hot coal in your hand, you know, with all your anger and your upset, and who's getting burned, you know? You're the only one getting burned, you know? And he actually didn't use that analogy, but I always think of it. It's like my favorite one. And forgiveness isn't for anybody else. Forgiveness is for you. Forgiveness is for you to allow yourself to feel and let go and and cry and 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 not hold that uh, and and that's what you see in Joseph you know yeah they got the bene- they were the beneficiaries of the fact that he was willing to forgive them and they brought him there and they got to live and you know and survive but they never as you said I said before they never really got over it they they felt guilty their whole lives they knew you know you're not supposed to sell your brother to slavery. It's like a bad choice that they made one day. You know, it turned out okay. And Joseph, of course, because we, this is my other favorite comment, which doesn't come till next week's Torah portion, but in one of my favorite comments in the Torah is Joseph saying, you meant it for bad, but God meant it for good. That's the blessing curse thing. I know you thought what you were doing, but you were just a, you're just a tool anyway for God to send me here so I could rescue you and we could all live and survive. You know, if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here. If you hadn't done what you thought was a bad thing, it wasn't a bad thing. Because if you hadn't done that, we'd all died. We starved to death like everybody else, but God had a different plan, you know. And that's sort of how we look back, and with twenty twenty hindsight, or however you want to say it, we interpret our own lives. You know, it's like I, I just did. Gee, thank God I got rejected by this place. Thank God I got rejected by. The fact of the matter is, if I'd have been accepted, if I'd have been hired by Ava Shalom in Northridge. Been, I wouldn't have known that I wasn't here. I would have been there. I would have been fine, and it would have been, you know, whatever success I had there as a rabbi in Northridge or whatever. It would have been fine. 
right? It would have been just different. But I look at it and go, oh, thank God I wasn't there because I got to be here. You know, if I'd have been there, I'd have been, thank God they hired me. Isn't that great? You know what I mean? So, but that's how we do it. That's what we do as humans. We reinterpret our, we tell our own story. Our story is we make up, we are meaning makers. This is what human beings are, in my humble opinion. We are uh, meaning makers. What is your license plate say? Make Make miracles, yeah. You know, we make our own miracles. We we are the ones who see them that way. You know, see, interpret what, just like we interpret dreams, put ourselves in it, we say, this is what it means to me. And the rabbis and Thomas Barnard to say, whatever it means to you, that's what it means. Who cares what someone else says? It's your dream. What you say it means, that's what it means. That's what matters. And human beings, what sets us apart from animals, in my humble opinion, is that we are meaning makers. I don't probably think that my daughter, my lovely beloved daughter Gable has six dogs you know, she's a dog person, she has six dogs her dogs are interesting but I don't think they're sitting around making up meaning about this is what my life means, I just don't think that, I I watch them and I for sure they aren't thinking about what my life means Uh, you know you know, for her she created meaning out of her dogs they didn't, she did because that's what we do we, what you're saying is that they landed butter. Yeah, they, they made it, they made it well, well those, those rescue dogs. She rescued them all now. They're, anyway, um, yeah. Do you think Joseph was able to forgive and do the right thing, you know, as a grown-up and a leader in Egypt? He because of his Jewish education as a child. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that he had such a good Jewish education as a child. He was clearly cut short. Um, you know, uh, I think that um, we are all the beneficiaries of Joseph's story that becomes our Jewish education, um, which is sort of what the Torah has been doing for several thousand years, obviously being the foundation of our Jewish story and Jewish education. Um, I think that the Joseph story is clearly one of the fundamental themes of the Joseph story is um, Joseph's relationship with God. There's no question, but that he constantly says, even though he's now, in, even when he becomes, he's an Egyptian, and fear, you know, Egypt has a whole different little theology than, than Israelite theology of one God and, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, in fact, Pharaoh's God in, in Egypt and you know, Ra and all those other gods, sun gods and all those other gods in in Egypt. Um, When we are redeemed in Exodus from our slavery, which happens next time around, you know, know, Exodus opens with the famous phrase, a new king arose over Egypt who knew not Joseph and then decides to enslave us all. And then Moses shows up, we get redeemed. You know, the rabbis in one of their more famous uh, sections of the Talmud asked the question, what did we do to merit redemption from Egypt? What did we, our ancestors, do that merited redemption from Egypt? And they say that we did, there's four different things that we did that merited redemption. 
you know, and one of them was, by the way, that we kept our Hebrew names. So the, the women kept the, huh? Was it the women who kept? Women the, kept the, did everything. Yeah, I mean, we got redeemed because of women. Anyway, that's what the rabbi said. because because of the righteousness of women. Right. Um, Never shall it be so. It's always so. You know, it's the women who held on to the identity and passed it down and you know, paid attention. But but it was about. We didn't succumb to Egyptian immorality. We didn't succumb to Egyptian theology. We continued to teach the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that in spite of living in a world that was radically different with a different theology and a different idea about God and gods and everything else, that it's a continuation from Joseph and bringing his brothers and creating the, in the land of Goshen and creating this Jewish enclave in the midst of an Egyptian world. And that, that's part of this fundamental underlying story is, it's after all, that ends up with Moses <laughs> representing God in the arm wrestling contest with Pharaoh, right? Okay, I'm representing God and you think you're God. And we're going to see who wins. And, you know, and my God wins. And you don't. And therefore, you know, when we vanquish the most powerful army on earth, we vanquish the most powerful country on earth with our invisible God. When, when Pharaoh is a perfect symbol of the surrounding cultures all needing a physical God, something they can see and something they can touch, something that um, much of the world continues to do in many ways. Um, need a physical physicality. Just had Christmas after all. I just went to five services on Christmas Eve, um, which we, Didi and I, do every year. We have our our church pilgrimage. We start at the Methodist, the Lutheran church next door, and then we go to the Methodist church, and then we're at the Presbyterian church. We go to services. We just appear. We just appear. We just go, sit, say hello listen to the same story over and over again. Same quotes. Well, actually, it's a story of one of our boys. Same quotes. And I'm proud every time. <laughs> exactly. I'm always proud. That's right. That's, someone said to the other, one of the ministers, one of the ministers, the Methodist minister, only my wife can get away with this. So the Methodist minister says, I'm so glad you guys are here. And Didi says, well, I just wanted to make sure Jesus wasn't the only Jew showing up tonight. <laughs> anyway, so... <laughs> Only Didi can get away with that. So, uh, but yeah, we do that every year, um, and it, it's nice. It's nice. Well, you know, they're happy that we're there. We're happy that we're there. They're, people know us, and it's sort of good for the Jews, I think. Um, Oh yeah, they're like the best. They're like the highest. They're the best. They do the best stuff. They're dressed really well. They got the great robes and all their. Yeah, they do the most high church stuff. In any event, the, to me, it, this is really the story and his ability to do this is because he gained the humility and he recognized that there's a power greater than him that is directing his life and that the things that looked like they were bad, being sold into slavery and going in prison, were actually steps toward the ultimate redemption that allowed him to be in a position, because of his relationship with God, to redeem his family and ultimately save the entire Jewish people. That, what you just said about he realized there was a power greater than himself, 
and the fact that he treated his brothers the way he wanted to be treated are to me the essence of Judaism the rest yeah. of it is, is just embellishment sounds like Hillel there's, yeah. a, there's a certain Hillel <laughs> happening here yeah, yeah. I know, we're supposed to read Torah text. I never to, get to, to it. circle back just one second yes. on the mask issue yes. that you talked about at the beginning, one of the things that always strikes me about this is that masks may work with people, but they never work with God. Oh, beautiful. And one of the challenges of Jewish prayer, which I think is the reason that a lot of people don't like to indulge in it, is, no, 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 is it, 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 it involves unmasking oneself. Hmm. Because masks, I mean, that, that's part of the metaphor of Jewish prayer, that masks don't work with God. And I don't know what that means, but I said it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, you know. Um. I mean, I, mean I, I, meant that metaphor, I meant that metaphorically. But it's hard to stand or sit and just to, and be naked, completely. I don't mean physically naked no, as yeah. much as spiritually and everything else. Because masks just don't work. Yeah, there's a Talmud. Uh, one of the descriptions, uh, attributes of God, mentioned in the Talmud is the uh, revealer of secrets. Mm-hmm. That is that, you know. And in fact, we make reference to that in part of the high holiday liturgy. That because in theory you're coming to. Uh, on Rosh Hashanah, you're coming on Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment. You're coming on the High Holidays to lay yourself bare, to unmask yourself, recognizing that that you know God is the this is the power that with a thousand people uh, understands a thousand secrets. That no matter that you can't hide, you can run, but you can't hide. Kind of thing. That that's how we understood. The what the divinity is about, it's that you know that we there there are no secrets. We can pretend, and part of growing up, and part of maturing, and part of achieving humility. I mean, after all, look, Moses is the greatest leader. I mean, Moses in the Torah is our greatest leader. Um, it's not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It's Moses, right? We got to. He's our redeemer. Moses is the guy, and what's Moses's Number one attribute that the rabbis as, ascribe to him is humility. That's number one attribute that uh, allegedly that he's the guy who spoke face to face with God and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And in spite of that, the the quality that the rabbis ascribed to him was humility. There was a reason that they ascribed that to him because he's supposed to be the role model, you know, of us. Because it's tough to be humble when you have your own little successes and when we have your own insecurities. I mean, you know, I've said this before too, but everybody's insecure. Human beings are insecure. We come by it honestly. Human beings were born totally vulnerable and insecure. We're not like animals that drop out of their mother's womb and then go by and they'll, you know, our legs are up and off we go. You know, you watch the deer or whatever and off they run. We don't do that. We're just like, blob of helplessness for years year after year after year after year after year how many years is it yes right you never get over it that's exactly right because how many years is a human being totally dependent on some adult for life and health and food and shelter 
I'll let you know when my college kid moves out. Exactly. <laughs> but exactly, that's, you know, and we chuckle and we whatever because how else, can, how can we not be insecure? You know, our, the, the years, the primary years of the formation of our, who we are, of our character, of our sense of self, of our, of our understanding of the world, we are this totally helpless thing that all we can do is manipulate and figure out how to manipulate and get, make sure someone's going to show up and cry, that works, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, what doesn't work, being nice, being this, you know, and we all come up with all of our how to juggle this, how to do whatever, so that we'll survive, literally survive. And even as adults, when our parents die, we're left suddenly saying, who do I go to now? You know, because we, we're always the child. <laughs> First of all, that, we, that we child never goes away. That strength. That child never goes away. So, you know, what was it? Transactional? Was it TA? What was that form of uh, therapy that was about child, adult, and parent? I think it was transactional analysis. Wasn't that right? God, what a memory. I can actually remember something. Yeah, there's that whole form but where the notion was that each of us has these three parts of us, the child in us, the parent in us and the adult in us essentially when we react differently the child is always like needy <laughs> and trying to figure out how to get and, and take care of ourselves and protect ourselves and the adult is the rational part of us that can calmly think and the parent is the judgmental part of us that's always going <coughs> you know and we have all of that in us and part of the challenge of life is to pick the right version of us at the right time <laughs> you know given given life's um, needs and that part of what right makes mass. relationships don't work is when we're using the wrong parent the wrong time anyway with, with somebody else who's also got those same three things happening in any event um, to me Torah is about teaching us to grow up and teaching us to be mentious teaching us to be fully human what does it mean to be fully human and, and how do we learn from these lessons and in this story which because I'm me we just talk and don't read um, the, the uh, that's the way it works stuck with me today um, in this story there's all these different levels of the story there's the if we were to because when I started in a dream you're all the parts of the dream well in the Torah you're all the parts of the Torah so so if you were the brothers what do you like like in what way are you like the brothers in this story anybody think of some way that you personally feel like could relate to what the brothers are going through after anytime anytime in the story you know I mean all of us have experiences of doing things that we wish we hadn't done <laughs> after all I mean you know nobody's perfect we, that's part of growing up and making mistakes you know and one of the great uh, one of the great challenges of life for me is remembering that mistakes are how we learn mm -hmm. that making a mistake isn't a mistake <laughs> making a mistake is how we learn you know mm -hmm. that we part of our part of what unfortunately happens to kids when they're in school is that they they get uh, taught that it's bad to make a mistake so that 
therefore we don't admit when we make mistakes, we hide our mistakes, we feel bad about our making mistakes, we beat ourselves up about making mistakes, we feel guilty about mistakes, instead of, it's like, you know, trying to walk and you watch a baby and they fall down, and you fall down, fall down, fall down, and ultimately you go, oh, I'm up. You get on a bike, you fall down, and you're up. You know, if you've stopped, if you fell, you know, the first time you fall down, and you're trying to stand up, then everybody be crawling. No one would ever stand up, you know. But until we're, it's beaten out of us one way or another, emotionally or physically, we know when we're little kids, this is how you learn. You try things, you jump, you do whatever, you learn. You better not jump like that again. You know, and this is life's about. So here, you know, that's what the brothers, they screwed up. They know they screwed up. They've been beating themselves up ever since because don't forget, why did they get rid of Joseph? They were jealous. And what did they think was going to happen? He'd why die. did they get rid of him? He'd die. He'd and then what? Huh? They would be in favor. Yeah, but why, so what, did they, what did they get rid of him for? They wanted their father's They wanted their father's love. He loves Joseph more than us. We've got to get rid of this guy. Then he'll love us. Oh, Leah. Then I, I'm going to have lots of kids. Then he'll love me. Didn't work. Didn't work for them either. The opposite happened. They got rid of Joseph, his favorite son. And what happened? He went into the most deep depression and grief that they, like, they lost him altogether. Till now. Till 20 years, two years later, whatever it is. Right? I mean, exactly the opposite happened. They just wanted their father's love. Doesn't everybody? Everybody just wants their parents' love. They want their parents' approval forever. We're in the middle of watching the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, um, which we only watch one at a time because we like to spread it out. So, you know, I'm watching this poor thing. You know, it was like all she wants is her parents' acknowledgement and acceptance and love and come and watch me perform. And it's like, nah. You know, it's like, can't you just appreciate your daughter? And I'm watching going, it's like, that's all she wants, right? All she wants, all anybody ever wants is their parents' approval forever, whether their parents are alive, dead, or whatever. We always want our parents' approval. And that's what's going on, part of what's going on here. You know, is stories reminding us that we, okay, we make mistakes. But if we can learn from our mistakes, and we can grow, and we can feel the sense that there's something bigger than just us, that's what humility is about. That's why Joseph, to me, is a symbol of humility here. Because he keeps saying, it's not me, it's God. And recognizing that there's something bigger than just me. Even though I'm always the center of my own universe, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm only in here, I'm not over there. Um, how we touch other people is through humility. That's where our strength comes. Being emotional, you know, boys don't cry. Unless you're Joseph, and you suddenly get overwhelmed, and, you're, and, you know, and, and we admire that. You know, that's the world that, yeah. Do you think that <clears throat> during those years that Joseph rose up to power, yeah. he was wearing a mask? Was, he had to, if he believed in monotheism, yeah. in God, to be as powerful as he did, he would have to swear allegiance to the Egyptian gods. Yeah, 100%. So he lived in guilt during that period of time. Beautifully put. All those years. Everybody's got to make... Joseph was a fraud. All those years, Joseph was... All those years. Joseph 
had to accommodate to the reality of his political situation. So when the brothers showed up, do you think that he finally said to himself, I've carried this burden far too much, it's time to shuck the pretense? No, he played with him. I think that yeah, the tears. I mean, he, he saved them. Yeah, he, he rescued them. He I, I think you're onto something here. I think that that that's part of the the peeling of the yeah. levels, the the onion of Joseph, who had to have a certain persona. He had his Egyptian face, his Egyptian clothes, his Egyptian name, his Egyptian spouse, his Egyptian kids. You know, and he was. He was Kafaro. He was uh, like Pharaoh. And then all of a sudden, he's immediately brought back into his childhood. The child in there never goes away. That hurt child that got sold into slavery. The minute he saw his brothers, it's like, ah, you know, having to put those together. Do you think this is the first time that Joseph consciously took an existential risk? Because he did. I mean, saving his brother. Yes. He had to defy the conventions that he... Yeah, he did. Supposedly left. Yeah, you're right. So that took... He had to warn them, don't say this, don't that say that. that. I mean, so this was a, this was a danger. Courage. I mean, that took yeah. a lot of... Yeah. Sort of this epiphany, you know. Yeah. Was, uh, it's akin to Queen Esther of the Purim story saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to uh, the king and I could get my head chopped off but I'm going to make this work and he did the same thing I'm going to go to the pharaoh and go I'm going to resettle my brothers here those schleppy shepherds that you guys don't like is that okay I'm going to like by the way by the way this is my family you know it's like yeah you know it's like he had to reveal himself and that was another powerful moment Yes, 100%. This is like, that's why Ephraim, be like Ephraim and Manasseh, because in spite of that, they became two of the tribes of Israel. Because, yeah, what's it like? What does it mean to be a minority in a majority culture? What does it mean to be vulnerable always to the to the king? Like you know, wearing a mask all the time. And wearing a mask, you know, and when does it get revealed in positive ways, negative ways? Time's up, I see. Um, with the. Yeah, what are you keeping this Jewish stuff going for anyway? And a lot of people ask that question. Yes, of course, they ask it in every generation. Here we are, 10 Jews in the world, and why are we still around? Yeah. You know, and why are we still around is the great mystery of life. It's a good one that we wrestle with all the time, and, you know, we're such a small percentage of the world population, even of the American population, that in theory, nobody should even know about us, shouldn't even hear about us. We're such a small percentage, but everybody knows about us every day, and because we're loud and noisy, as I always say, because we're Jewish, we're loud, and we're noisy. Read Mark Twain's comments. Yeah, I love Mark Twain. So anyway, thank you all for coming. Shabbat Shalom. Got nothing to do tonight, 7 o'clock. I'll be leading services with Daniel Lee.